Vengeance on Varos, read by Colin Baker. The random laser emitter spat a searing beam at the young man chained to a wall deep within the punishment dome of the planet Varos. Desperately twisting in the chains, Jondar succeeded in evading the laser beam but the heat of its passing caused a howl of anguish to be torn from lips parched by the tension of his long ordeal. In the ceiling near the wall, a television camera beamed every detail of his suffering into the home cells of the viewers, for whom the ruling officer class of Varos termed this entertainment and instruction. In the media dome, a young technician... Bax, whose job it was to select the most dramatic pictures to broadcast, had a hunch that John Dar's luck at dodging the laser could not last much longer. The home cell of Etta and her husband Arak was the standard size for two Verosians without children. It had a bedroom just large enough to contain a two-tiered bunk and a living room with a plastic table and two metal chairs that faced a viewing screen, which occupied the entire area of one wall. Before this screen sat Etta, closely observing the pictures transmitted from the punishment dome. Etta glanced up as Arak entered, home after a long shift at the mining corpse. The image of Jondar filled the screen and dominated the room. Well, not him again. Yeah, he's still alive. Just. Anything to eat. Etta, absorbed in the quick cutting of camera angles, jabbed a finger in the general direction of the food locker. Arak sighed, trying to remember a time when his wife would serve food to him. I'll get it myself, then. Arak angrily contemplated a small can without a label. Is this all there is? His wife shrugged. It's the shortages. Maybe the governor will explain. There's to be a vote in tonight. I'll keep it to chuck at the screen when your beloved governor comes on, begging my vote. Attacking Comtech property can bring loss of viewing rights. The way you're thinking, Arak, you'll soon be in that one's place. Etta nodded towards the image of Jondar on the screen. Suddenly, the wall screen became blank. From the speaker, the gloomy national anthem of Varos began. Arak yawned. Oh, I'm tired. I think I'll go to my bunk. You can't do that, Etta said as she reached under her chair to remove two voting transmitter units, one marked yes and the other no. We've got to vote. Do it for me. Arak yawned again. Horrified, Etta turned to face him. You want Paul Corpse calling here? Do you, Arak? Amused by his wife's obvious fear, Arak smiled. How could they know it wasn't me voting, eh? I tell them, she said, with a determination that Arak found quite chilling. The TARDIS, in a limbo of time and space, was motionless. Inside the console room, the doctor was immersed in a serpent's nest of multicoloured wirings. With a sudden flourish, he stood up and addressed Perry, who was patiently watching. That's it! Unimpressed, she regarded the doctor dourly. I don't but Every time you sound confident, something awful seems to happen. What exactly do you mean? Warily, Perry watched the doctor. Since his last regeneration, his personality seemed uneven, to say the least. Well, to be honest, 
I'm, I'm thinking more and more about returning to America to complete my studies. Right. That's where you'll go. The doctor activated the controls and adjusted the coordinates to the 20th century on Earth. Perry frowned angrily. She hadn't expected her threat to be translated into such instant action. Oh, you're the most inconsistent and intolerant man I've ever met. Shh. Something amiss with the power units. Still, after all the work you've done? The doctor nodded sadly. It's the one area I didn't check. How you can do something, doctor, I'm sure. It's just that we may well be marooned within this pocket of space. But for how long? The doctor spread his hands in a hopeless gesture and said with utter certainty, Evermore. The governor's head sagged against the back of his chair in an apathy of despair. Above him was the human cell disintegrator, which could pour down rays of pain and destruction if the people of Varos voted against him. Alternatively, when they balloted in his favour, warm golden rays cascaded down, bringing energy, optimism and a new determination to govern wisely. Now, he was exhausted after surviving a sequence of three losing vote-ins. He wondered how he could find the strength to carry on battling for a fair price on the sale of the mineral Zyton 7. Into his office, carried by two burly black-helmeted bodyguards, came the negotiator of Galatron Consolidated, the alien Sill, from the planet Thoros Beta. Leaf green in colour and perch in his water tank, Sill was a member of a species of mutant amphibians. The scaly crescent that ran from his roomy eyes to the back of his head bristled with impatience as he glared up at the governor. Lower the price of Zyton ore. You are not a rich planet. Zyton is all you have to sell. Then we will have to sell elsewhere. A cackle of laughter burst from Sill's mouth. Its eerie sound brought in the chief officer from the adjoining communications centre. As a custodian of the constitution of Varos, the chief officer held a unique position. In some respects, he had greater power than the governor himself. Sill addressed the chief in a voice of some pained sincerity. Already I have exceeded my authority to please this governor. We must have an increase, the governor said stubbornly. Your company pays us hardly enough to exist. The slug-like sill settled back into his water tank complacently. We pay ample, he said, and waved his bearers to carry him out of the governor's presence. Outside the governor's office, Sill and the chief officer glanced warily about them, making sure no one could overhear the conversation. Sill began the exchange. We do not like this present governor. You must a replacement arrange. My dear Sill, a little patience is all that is required. He's unlikely to survive another negative vote-in, trust me. Maybe I should with your payoffs dispense. Sill's eyes glinted with calculation. You really mustn't threaten me, the chief officer began, but was distracted by the sudden glowing of a red light above the door of the governor's office. Enough talk, Sill motioned to his bearers. I wish to witness the last suffering moments of this fool governorship. Moving towards the bank of monitors, Sill and the chief began to watch what seemed certain to be the final broadcast of the present governor.
viewers of Varos. I ask that we agree to hold out for a fair price for our Zeiton ore. Those in favour, vote yes for a 10% reduction in our food supplies. Those who wish for full bellies today and nothing to eat tomorrow can, of course, punch their no button. A visual display unit showed the voting totals. 633,156 yes, 987,627 no. Bracing himself, and still on camera, the governor placed his arms along the supports of his chair. Steel bands snapped around his wrists. The pain, when it descended upon him, was devastating. The doctor was suddenly animated by hope. Suddenly, the rotor column moved and lifted. Doctor! We've enough power for a limited flight, no more. The transitional elements must be replaced. Well, how long would that take? Oh, no time at all. It's not the fitting that's the problem. We must reline the trans-power system with a mineral called Zyton 7. Unfortunately, it's to be found on only one planet that I know of. Varos. Now, if we use the emergency power unit, we might just reach it during their mining era. Syl was hardly pleased. The governor lives on. Next time he will die, the chief said soothingly. Next time should be now! Syl broke off as the governor appeared in the doorway of his office. Wearily, as protocol demanded, the governor looked for permission to leave from the chief officer. Permission to leave granted, sir, the chief said, and helped the governor to a stool which was hastily provided by the monitoring technician, Bax. Syl calculatingly saw his chance. Shall we resume negotiations now, your governorship? Um, my... my office. Syl and the chief left the room, and the governor tried to follow, but staggered and almost fell under the effort. Steady, sir. Bax quickly offered a supporting arm. Oh, thank you. Sir, you need a respite to build up your strength, advised Bax. Oh, yes, but how? A governor must govern. Why not give the people a bonus? An execution? Ask them to vote as to whether or not you should execute the rebel Jondar. It's a few weeks since an execution on video. They're bound to agree. Now, I've worked it all out. If you neutralise a Q-switch and build up a giant pulse of light, an explosion of focused laser energy will wipe the prisoner out of existence. Uh, no, I'm too quick. We wouldn't be able to sell videos of such an instant execution. Ah, but it's the uncertainty. No one knows quite when the power will blow. We could get ten minutes of tension out of the prisoner's apprehension, fear, terror. The governor, sick and weary, thought longingly of the life-enhancing rays that would pour down upon him if the people voted yes for John Dar's execution. Well, the rebel had to die anyway. Why not this way, in the unusual manner that Bax proposed? Very well. The chief will arrange it. I will ask the people for their verdict. Jondar raised his head as the words heralding his death were spoken over him. For sedition, thought rebellion and incitement of others to unionise and terrorise, the vote of the people of Varos was for your death to take place by laser obliteration. 
With a dramatic flourish, the chief officer rolled up the proclamation and turned away from the laser that was beginning to build up the power to hurl a beam of immense force and obliterate Jondar. The chief took a young guard, Maldak, aside. It's not certain when obliteration will take place. Stay clear of the execution site. You have your anti-hallucination helmet? Maldak nodded. Yes, sir. I wouldn't wish one of my guards to succumb to the phantoms of the Punishment Dome, not with all of Varos watching. In the home cell of Etta and Arak there was great excitement. Arak stared, fascinated at Jondar on screen, while in the background of the shot a blue rectangular object appeared. Any moment now, he said with relish. You won't dodge this one, that's for certain. We're back in the Middle Ages, Doctor. Perry gestured towards a screen that showed the half-naked figure of Jondar chained to the wall. No, the doctor said, watching the screen. For once, we're where we ought to be. Look, Perry exclaimed. Maldak had appeared, and the gun in his hand was firing a beam straight at them. It streamed towards the TARDIS and then deflected harmlessly. Friendly of him, said the doctor. Maldak could not believe that such a large object as the TARDIS could be imaginary, but such were the tricks and sensory distortions that were deliberately engineered into the Punishment Dome that it was possible he might be making an utter fool of himself. He decided to call his control centre for assistance. Report a fault on helmet hallucinfilter permission to withdraw. Stay until after the obliteration, the reply crackled back immediately. There was nothing to do but obey. Artificial atmosphere, enclosed, rack, underground, breathable. Perry paused, looking up at the viewer screen, at the sickly green light that reflected from the strained features of Jondar. What is this place? Why did that guard turn away from us as if we didn't exist? Let's go and ask him, shall we? The doctor said, and before Perry could say a word, he was off towards the exit. In the governor's office, Sill, the chief and the governor, now somewhat revived after the positive voting, clustered about the screen. This is the most wonderful entertainment, Sill gloated, his tongue flicking in and out like a lizard sneering an insect. Sir, Bax entered, his face puzzled and concerned. There's a strange, unexplained object in the punishment dome. Not now, the chief said automatically, his eyes never wavering from the video screen where Jondar faced execution. Bax tried again. But silence, Sill screamed. Can't you see execution is imminent? Perry followed the doctor as he stole closer and closer up behind Maldak. When they were within a pace of him, Maldak suddenly turned with his energy weapon trained upon them. The young guards stared long and hard at the doctor and Perry, expecting them to fade like phantoms under the intensity of his gaze. Confusingly, the doctor and Perry refused to disappear. My, my anti-hallucin switch is suffering malfunction. Maldak's certainty faltered. That's right. And we've come to fix it. Right, Perry? Sure. Show me the switch. Come on, at once. Obeying the tone of command, Maldak reached for his helmet, allowing the doctor to make a grab for the gun. Locked in a desperate arm-to-arm -arm contest to wrest the weapon from Maldak, the pair began to edge towards the shuddering laser. Jondar waited and prayed for the prison guard to come within reach. The doctor gambled on a sudden release of his resistance. 
Staggering away with the weapon, Maldak stumbled within range of Jondar's chained wrists. Knowing his opportunity would only last a second, Jondar pounced, smashing down with all his force against the nape of the guard's neck. Maldak slumped down onto his knees. Jondar struck again and rendered the guard unconscious. Help me! Jondar roared. The laser is about to fire! Quickly, the doctor moved to the rear of the laser and began to examine it thoughtfully. Is this planned? Sill shrilled, then pointed angrily at the screen, which showed the doctor working furiously to disarm the laser. Certainly not, the governor frowned. Call the retrieval squad, ordered the chief. We'll have a triple execution, Jondar, the intruder, and the girl. The doctor sighed with relief. Joining two contact points, he cut off the build-up of power. With the laser suddenly quiet, the jangle of Jondar's chains brought the doctor's attention back to the condemned man. Help me, whoever you are, Jondar gasped, straining against his steel bonds. Seeing the taut links gave the doctor an idea. Perry, pull him away from the wall. How? Support him. Pull the chains tight. Taking careful aim, the doctor flicked to the Q-switch and a searing bolt parted the chains that held Jondar to the wall. Right, let's go back to the safety of the TARDIS, the doctor said, but then saw, beyond the blue police box, a black patrol car swishing along on a monorail that ran down the centre of the gloomy corridor. Doctor, help me. Pull this laser contraption round. Perry and Jondar helped the doctor tug the laser around to face the oncoming retrieval squad car, and beams of force began to stream towards the car, which braked and came to a halt. Realising that return to the TARDIS was now impossible, the doctor signalled that they should retreat into a corridor that led further into the punishment dome. But it's a dead end, Doctor! The doctor hardly acknowledged her. All his attention was focused on the glowing red eye of a camera above them. There's a patrol car coming! said Jondar. Well, let's try and halt their progress, then. The doctor pulled the camera cable from the wall, bringing the camera crashing down onto the monorail in a shower of glowing sparks. There was a blinding flash, and the corridor was instantly plunged into darkness. The doctor felt a cool touch on the skin of his neck. Turning, he heard a woman's voice speaking low and urgently into his ear. This way, through here. Well... If you insist, the doctor replied, and stepped through an open wall panel into a disused cell. Perry was followed by Jondar, who, on seeing their rescuer was his wife, cried out in delighted surprise. Aretta! Holding her fingers to his lips, Aretta, a lithe blonde girl in her late teens, slid the wall panel back into place, covered her flashlight, and waited tensely, while the guards prowled past outside. Eventually the lights came on again. As Jondar and Aretta embraced, Aretta said, oh, I, I thought we'd lost you. They set up your execution so quickly we couldn't even stage an attempt at rescue. Rondel got me in here, but he's had to go on duty. Jondar frowned and nodded towards the doctor and Perry. Well, I thought they were sent by you. No. We came in the TARDIS, said the doctor, and seeing their puzzlement, he added, A ship. A spaceship? Uh, something like that. Uh, what is this place? Varos was a prison planet once, Jondar explained. A colony for the criminal and insane. The descendants of the original officers still rule. The rest of us, 
toil and exist without hope. The doctor could hardly believe what he was hearing. But you have precious mineral deposits, Zyton 7! Oh, that stuff, who wants it? I wouldn't say no to a little. They were interrupted by the noise of guards searching the corridor outside. Quickly, this way, said Aretta, pulling aside a grey-stained canvas curtain, revealing a dark, gaping hole where blocks of stone had been removed from the wall. Clinging to each other, they stumbled through the hole and made their way blindly forward. Just as it seemed they must wander the rat-infested corridors of the old prison endlessly, Jondar noticed a bright crack of light running down a walled-off passageway up ahead. Seven stones down, the slab tilted, and the wall opened into a dimly lit passageway that was empty except for a camera, which glowed as it detected their presence. These cameras, they feed pictures from here into every home, said the doctor, and into the guard control points, Jondar explained. Aretta waved a tense hand around the seemingly featureless rock of the corridor. Areas of danger lurk around every corner. You can die in... Oh, so many ingenious ways. Aretta's right, said Jondar grimly. But the cruelest thing is that there is supposed to be a safe route leading towards the exit. Anyone who finds that way out must automatically be granted pardon and freedom. The doctor brightened. Ah, so there's hope. Jondar and Aretta exchanged glances reflecting a weary cynicism. It's another trick of the officers. Well, you're certain? No, but everything else is. Ah. Well, we'd better get back to my TARDIS. That way we can all escape instantly. Do you know where we are, Jondar? asked Aretta. Oh, yes, the Purple Zone adjoining the execution area. Purple Zone? the Doctor asked. If we are to get back to your ship, the only way I know is through that sector, replied Jondar grimly. Then we're as good as dead, Aretta muttered. Rubbish, the Doctor said abruptly, and immediately strode along the corridor away from the others. Perry hurried after him. Shaking their heads, Jonda and Aretta reluctantly began to follow. They'd almost caught up with the Doctor when a tinge of deep purple completely enclosed their vision. Perry was the first to hear the angry buzz behind them. Fearfully, she looked back and screamed in terror at the huge yellow-eyed demon bearing down upon them. "'Get down!' the Doctor shouted. The frenzied creature zoomed over them, its wings vibrating with such force they felt flattened by its passing. Their attacker turned and hovered, preparing for another attack. The Doctor stared at the massive black body covered in green circular stripes and the six black legs dangling and glistening in the purple light. With a jolt, he realised what it was that was hurtling down upon them, hell-bent on their destruction. "'Close your eyes!' he yelled, knowing that his theory would be instantly verified either by safety or oblivion. With their eyes closed, the roaring, gyrating sound of their attacker immediately disappeared. The doctor reached behind him. My hand, Perry. Whatever you do, don't look about you. After much blind fumbling, the four finally linked up and, clambering awkwardly to their feet, stumbled along, led by the doctor. After much bumping into walls and each other, the Doctor ventured a peep and discovered to his relief that the Purple Zone had disappeared and once more they were in a seemingly unremarkable grey stone passage. The Doctor smiled. It's OK. You can wake up now. Cautiously, the trio peered about them and saw only the empty corridor. What? Well, what's happened? Perry demanded. 
Hearing a slight buzz nearby, the doctor made a quick grab and closed his hand. After plucking a tiny object from the air and cupping one hand over the other, he grinned at his companions. Let me show you your attacker, the fearsome flying monster of Varos. Opening his hands, he invited inspection of the tiny buzzing object. A geegee fly, said Aretta. Yes, a common and harmless little fly, said the doctor. It was somehow distorted by the purple light, so our sight told our brains it was a huge predatory insect. The doctor paused, opened his hands, and watched the tiny geegee fly away. The doctor began to look about him at the walls, the ceiling, and at the ever-present cameras. He waved a casual greeting to whoever might be watching, hardly realising that meant most of the population of Varos. Perry looked up and down the empty corridor and heard a distant rumbling sound. Is everything we experience here imaginary? Uh, no, answered Jondar, as they began to move away from the purple zone. Some dangers are very real. The crowd loves to watch trialists face a danger that they think must be imaginary. Perry was horrified by what she was hearing. Well, who loves to watch such things? Well, almost everyone on Varos, Jondar replied. It's the way the officers divert discontent, questions, thoughts of revolution. But not everyone, not you. Jondar shrugged fatalistically. What good does our defiance do? We will perish here. Our deaths will provide only a moment's entertainment. We will not succumb quietly, said the doctor. Now, if there's an exit out of this fun palace, I suggest we make every effort to find it. Jondar was glancing about thoughtfully. I'm sure we are near to where I was almost laserized. Well, that's near the TARDIS, Perry nudged the doctor. I've seen enough of this dump. Let's go. Satisfied that order was about to be restored in the dome, the chief had returned to the communication centre to find a worried Bax punching up appreciation figures on a computer screen. Up the view, Pop, like them, chief. We've received dome-high appreciation figures. The chief rubbed his hands in anticipation. Good, good. All the more impact when they're captured, tried and executed. The recording of their final agonies should sell a million copies throughout the civilised worlds. Where are they now? The chief peered at the main screen. Almost where they first appeared. The TARDIS, the doctor began. Gone? Oh, we must find it! Not to panic, Perry, please. It must be around somewhere. Now, come on, come on. It has to be found. Guards! yelled Jondar, suddenly from behind him. A black snub-nosed patrol car full of armed guards was powering towards them. They ran, but round the next corridor they found themselves facing a junction of passageways, and, with but an instant to decide direction, the doctor chose the right, while the others at the same instant took the fork to the left. Turning the corner, the patrol car veered left and soon closed upon the three fleeing rebels. The commander sent a warning laser blast and smiled as the two women slowed and halted. A moment later, the man dejectedly joined them in surrender. Deep inside the punishment dome, the doctor paused, lungs straining from his race to escape capture. He could hear no sound or movement. Perspiring, he loosened his collar and began to trudge on. Another half a dozen steps, and the light was distinctly brighter, the temperature far warmer. He suddenly realised what was happening, 
and with a rapid turnabout charged back the way he had just come, only to cannon into a steel mesh grill that now barred any possibility of retreat. Arak groaned as the picture on the video screen changed abruptly to the flashing V that always preceded a government announcement. The smiling face of the governor appeared on their screen. The rebel Jondar and his compatriots have either been captured or destroyed. The leader of the aggressors, as you may just have seen, is at this very moment walking into a no-options kill centre. There he will suffer the fate of all who seek to overturn the law of Varos. There is, of course, as that law requires, the need for a vote of approval or disapproval. I await your verdict. The governor, strapped in his chair, waited tensely, watching the vote totals mount for and against. When a margin of seven to one in his favour became apparent, he allowed himself the luxury of relaxation, and the sparkling cascade of invigoration began. The light of the sun was blinding the doctor. His throat felt parched and cracked like the bed of a long, dried-up river. He stared into the distance, seeing only mile upon distant mile of red, desert landscape stretching ahead. Confusedly, he shook his wild mop of ash-blonde curls from side to side, trying to clear his brain. Nothing changed. When the first stirrings of wind breathed across his forehead, he was grateful for their relief. But soon it grew into a tormenting force which whipped stinging sand into his reddened and streaming eyes. It seemed to go on forever. Then... Just as suddenly it had begun, the force of the wind dropped to a whisper. Dehydrated from his exertions, he brushed the air before his eyes to clear the vision, but the heat distortion shimmered ahead. Then, magically, the burnished landscape faded and a verdant green island of palm trees with a cool, flowing stream appeared, on the far bank of which a peacock strutted accompanied by a familiar figure. Oh, oh, the doctor croaked confusedly and stumbled forward as he realised that the figure in blue blouse and shorts was beckoning with one hand, while in the other was a bottle of sparkling mineral water. Perry! The doctor shouted hoarsely, stumbling and forcing himself through the clinging sand. Cruelly, the vision receded leaving only a shimmer of empty air as the doctor once more found himself utterly alone in the harsh desert landscape. The wind began to rise and whipped up the particles of hot sand. It was everywhere, under eyelids, in eyes, ears, mouth. There seemed no escape except oblivion. The doctor coughed, fell forward on the ground, hauled himself up onto his elbows and then rolled onto his back and stared upwards into the glaring eye of the sun. Then his body separated from his spirit and moved no more. Over Sill's cackle of laughter, the chief shook his head wonderingly. 
What a wonderful thing the mind is. The hallucinatory inductor makes him believe he cannot survive, and soon he cannot even draw one breath after the next. It was a very fine joke. Thank you for such fine entertainment, Governor. My pleasure, the Governor replied for, but felt a vague dissatisfaction which he found hard to understand. After all, the death of the doctor was only the latest of so many he had witnessed. Going close, establish there is no flicker of life. Ah,、uh, yes, sir. Bax shifted his cameras so the doctor's waxen face filled the screen. He's dead, sir. In their bleak cell, Perry huddled for warmth next to the sleeping bodies of Aretta and John Dar. She wondered about the fate of the doctor. Probably he had escaped and was even now working to effect a rescue. She found the thought comforting, and drifted away into a fitful sleep, while the guards patrolled outside. Grumbling and moaning, the two mortuary attendants, As and Oza. Sorted through the day's intake of dead bodies, the curly-haired doctor attracted their attention through his gaudy apparel, but a search through his pockets revealed nothing of value. Someone got there first. Oza turned to his companion. Retrieval squad's been through all these stiffs. Nothing left to steal here. Should we acid bath them now? As indicated the sprawled, heaped bodies, grotesque in the careless tumble of death. Nah. The assy one's changing. Do it tomorrow. Anyhow, we might get featured in some pictures of the assy burning if there's nothing else happening. Next morning, Perry found herself shaken, roughly awake, and pushed out of the cell. Where, where, where are you taking me? She demanded of the surly black-suited guards. The governor was all the explanation she received before she was bundled into a patrol car. In the control room. Bax flicked the switch that gave him access to the mortuary. I wish to transmit pictures of acid disposal procedure. Start with one corpse, and then make something special of that fair-haired body in the patchwork coat. I'll be featuring his dissolution, so make sure no clumsy mistakes occur. A sound of marching feet behind him made Bax swivel round angrily in his chair. You are not to disturb, he began. And then saw the slight blue figure dwarfed by the black uniformed guards who surrounded her. Ah, the prisoner for interrogation. I will alert the governor. Max pressed an entry switch and waited for the door of the adjoining office to slide open. Expecting to see the governor, Max was surprised instead by the sight of a squat green figure being carried forth. One glance was enough to show that the Galatron negotiator was very angry indeed. How dare you disturb my bargaining? You have quite upset the concentrated thinkings of your governor. It's all right, Bax. The governor had followed Sill into the communication center. We still have far to go before a conclusion is reached about the price of Zaiton ore. The governor walked across to the guards and the girl. What is your name? What's yours? Perry said defiantly, though inside she felt only panic and apprehension. I have no name since I became governor. Out of the corner of her eye, Perry noticed a flash of colour on the main screen of the monitors. She stared closely, hardly believing what she saw. Hugh, 
You animals! What have you done to the doctor? Surely it is obvious your companion is dead. You did it! No, not really. This doctor had the hallucination that he was lost in the desert. His mind thought he was dying of thirst. You say your companion was called the doctor? Yes. And what is your name? Perry didn't want to give anything of herself, but then the little green, angry object quivering on its water tank screamed out at her, Answer! 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 Uh, Perry! Inadvertently, the name spilled out. Why are you here, Perry? You, you, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. The governor's hand took her arm and guided her towards his office. I promise I will listen to your story, Perry, however fantastic you may think it to be. I... Before Perry could finish, her eye caught movement on the screen. Oh, what are they doing? Waste disposal! <laughs> Syl grinned at the horrified realisation on the girl's face. Maybe we should show her the fate of those who meddle in the affairs of Varos, eh, Governor? The governor shrugged. Why not? Frozen in a petrified fascination, Perry watched the attendants pause by the edge of the acid bath and begin to lower an unknown body into the acid. For a second, the skeleton could be glimpsed. Then, that too disintegrated in the seething acid. Perry trembled and felt her hold on consciousness slipping away. In the mortuary, Az and Oza were conscious that the eyes of Varos were upon them. In careful unison, they timed their approach, Oza to the head and shoulders, Az to the feet of the doctor. Lift, Oza whispered, and bent over the doctor's face. Suddenly, a steel-blue eye opened with a mischievous twinkle. I've had the most peculiar dream the doctor said conversationally, and yawned up into Oza's face, sending the mortuary attendant reeling back towards the acid bath. Well, can't stay, said the doctor, and swung his legs down from the mortuary slab and stepped adroitly out of the way of the concerted rush of Az and Oza from either side of him. The attendants bellowed as they collided with each other, then turned towards the doctor, who now innocently loitered near the steaming, hissing acid bath. Az launched himself at the doctor, who, hoping for just this wild rush, stepped nimbly aside, causing the attendant to crash into the side of the bath, teeter for a moment, and then overbalance with the force of the assault. Help me! he yelled, panic-stricken. Hold on! his companion dashed to his partner's rescue, extending a helping hand that was grabbed with such urgent haste that the unfortunate rescuer toppled on top of Az, both submerged under the surface of the acid. The doctor let himself out into the corridor, determined to place some distance between himself and the mortuary where he was certain the cameras must have recorded his miraculous return to life. The doctor's metabolism felt sluggish and out of sorts. The decision he'd taken to feign death in order to survive the desert storm had taken a great toll of his life force. To suspend animation by stopping one of his hearts completely and to go into low hibernation pulse with the other was as dangerous an exercise as he had always been told it was. Not to be recommended, the doctor thought, as he groped his way along the gloomy corridor. 
His mind turned from past dangers to discovering the present whereabouts of Perry. The governor, the chief officer and Bax conferred worriedly. Where is the doctor? the chief demanded and scanned the screen furiously. Not in sight of our cameras. Try again. We must locate him, the chief urged Bax. I've scanned through twice, sir. Why isn't he within reach of our cameras? We cover every section of our jurisdiction, Bax shifted uncomfortably. I've checked a ground plan. He could have followed an old linking passage and gone into the inner prison control centre. Inadvertently, the governor and chief officer glanced at each other, one name entering both their thoughts at the same time. Quillam! The chief breathed the name for both of them. He refuses to allow our cameras to enter his domain, sir. Then that's where this doctor must have gone, the governor spoke decisively. Our guards can't enter without Quillam's permission. Then request it, chief. I must have the doctor captured. I must discover who he is and what is his reason for being on Varos. A distant sound came to the doctor's attention. It was a low, vibrating hum, as if from a distant power source. The jarring whine became louder and louder, and soon the doctor realised he was walking towards the main passageway. Cautiously, he peered round a corner. A fortunate precaution, for he almost bumped into two technicians, deep in a conversation that held their attention enough to allow the doctor to dodge back unseen. The doctor decided to follow them. The pair, still engrossed, turned into a wider chamber and disappeared through steel-clad doors that displayed in blood-red letters the warning, Entrance Forbidden, Authorised Personnel Only. The doctor peered in. Seated before monitoring units were some dozen workers. Chief amongst them, facing a TV screen, sat a figure whose features were completely hidden from view by a grey plastic mask. The doctor strained to hear the words of the masked figure as it pushed away from the control chair. On seeing the two technicians who'd come to report for their shift, Quillam stood stiffly. We must be aware that there is a fugitive loose, perhaps in our sector. Be alert. Quillam began to walk with an uneven, limping gait towards the exit doors. Glancing up and down the corridor, the doctor saw that no matter how quickly he could run, in any direction, he was bound to be seen by the man in the mask. Then he saw a closed door. He tried the handle. The door opened, and he found himself in a small room, obviously used to store protective clothing. On the rack opposite him hung several white coats and a grey plastic mask, the twin of that worn by the man whose exit from the control chamber had forced the doctor to retreat. Rapidly, the doctor took down the coat, put it on, picked up the grey mask, clapped it to his face, pulled together the narrow adhesive contact strip that held it in place, and turned anxiously towards the door, hoping his disguise would not need to be tested too thoroughly. After a few seconds, and just when the doctor began to think he was not to be discovered, he saw the handle turn and the door start to open. Quillam entered, stopped and reached into the pocket of his uniform for the phaser weapon he always carried. Who are you? The doctor bowed slightly. A student of science, much interested in primitive technology. Primitive? Quillam started, as if insulted, 
and then controlled his reaction. The mask. Remove it. Quillam watched the doctor wipe away beads of perspiration. I've seen you on the video screens. You've recently returned from the dead. The delegate of the Galatron Mining Company pointed a stubby green finger at the terrified girl trapped in the governor's chair and demanded shrilly, Why is she unvarus? She won't say, the governor reiterated patiently. Sill's features contorted with the effort of remaining in control of his anger. Are you an employed agent of other mining companies? You and that man who was dead! Perry began to speak with a sincere and hopeless anguish. I'm from another time, another century. I lived on another world. That's a new one. The chief grinned at the preposterous theory. Our TARDIS. Well, I mean, then that box outside is, if you like, a ship of time, a sort of spacecraft and... Oh, I, I don't understand the technical stuff, but the doctor said we must have this special metal to f fix the bearings or something, so so we've had to come here, so so, so th th that's what we did. While she was talking, Bax came in and whispered in the chief's ear. The chief turned to the governor. Once again, we have captured the mysterious doctor. Quillam came across him at prison control. The governor became thoughtful. How long is it since we rigged an old-style execution? Not since the Outer Dome sabotage trial, months ago. Then I think it's time we staged another, Chief. A wooden scaffold had been erected in the prison video studio. From the window of his cell, the doctor watched a black hooded figure, busily intent on testing each of the four nooses that dangled ominously over trapdoors. Under the doors was a short drop to the floor of the studio. Jondar and Aretta looked out of the cell window at what seemed to be the setting of a medieval courtyard. Three guesses who's next thereafter, the doctor said. Jondar frowned. There's four nooses. Now, the fourth rope is for Perry, I would have thought. But why isn't she with us? Jondar's eyes never wavered from the dangling ropes and the busy executioner. Plenty of other prisoners the authorities will be happy to be rid of. Why are they so anxious to eliminate you? Because I was curious, Jondar began. Simply curious. Varos is airless. We live in artificial domes scattered about the surface of the planet. Movement between domes is impossible without official permission. I can imagine. Most Ferozians live in poverty, continued Aretta. They work in the mines or in the video recording division, peddling real-life death scenes for export to other worlds. Jondar again spoke. I used to maintain the surface shuttle cars. One day I was required to deliver a shuttle car to the dome where the chief officer lives. The security was excessive, even for Varos. Eventually... My curiosity became too much. I hid inside a car that needed extensive repair. Then, 
when the guards were changing shifts for the evening, I slipped inside, stayed just long enough to see into the dome, to see how the elite live. Luxury, richness, wealth. The memory of the sights glimpsed so fleetingly dazed Jondar with their recall. I took the first shuttle car I could find back to the main workshop dome, but just being absent that short time caused suspicion, and eventually I was brought here. Jondar's arm tightened around the shoulders of his wife, and both of them turned to look out of the window to where the gallows waited. A key ground metallically in the lock of the cell door, and the heavy wooden structure swung open to reveal the figure of a black-robed priest who held an open Bible reverentially before him. "'Good evening, my children,' he said gravely, and began to lead the prisoners slowly out of the cell. The doctor took in the scene with a searching glance. Across the chamber before the scaffold stood a group comprising the governor, the chief, Sill with his attendants, and another figure that stood next to the fearsome black-hooded executioner. Perry! Doctor! Before they could take more than a step towards each other, guards began to bind their arms behind them. Perry's plaintive voice called over, Doctor, I'm sorry. I've tried everything, but they won't believe me. Truth is a flexible commodity on Varos, Perry. Although the doctor was pitching his voice across the chamber to Perry, his eyes and thoughts were examining the camera positions that were tilting and focusing upon the gibbet. So long as things look truthful, that's quite sufficient for this lot here. The governor spoke with brisk authority. What is the staging plan? The chief stood to attention. These two are to hang? The jabbing forefinger of the chief indicated the fate of the doctor and Jondar. Very good. And the women? I suggest they be given to reshapement and cell mutation experiment, the results to be exhibited on our screens as a warning to women who support rebel husbands. All eyes rested on the governor. I confirm those sentences. He glanced expectantly at the impassive face of the doctor. Anything to add, doctor? Anything that might persuade me to stop the executions? One request? One last request, yes, the chief prompted. The doctor inclined his head towards Sill. Who's he? Why is something like that resident here? Surprised, Sill spluttered out a reply. What interest can my... He began, but the governor interrupted briskly. The delegate from the Galatron Mining Corporation is visiting us to bargain over our yearly contract for Zyton Ore. Zyton Or? Zyton Seven? That's all we have to sell of any value. I see. Mm, thank you. Is that all you wish to know? Puzzlement was apparent in the Governor's question, but all the Doctor said was, mm, uh, mm, Yes, for the moment. Sill decided the tension was flagging. A moment is all you have, Doctor. Take them to the scaffold. <laughs> At once, the chief nodded. The women were taken away, and the doctor and Jondar marched towards the scaffold. From somewhere, a roll of drums began. The governor lifted a gloved hand. Wait! The governor relaxed. 
confident that his ploy had worked and that at last he would hear the truth about the visit to this planet by the mysterious doctor. Hold on, broadcast. No sound or vision. The doctor began to speak. My death will prevent Varos ever progressing out of the reach of extortion by such as the Galatron Mining Company. Our deaths will send the possibility of hope for this planet back into the pit of misery and fear that has for so long been the lot of its poor people. Sill decided great danger to himself and his company was about to be done. Pushing his attendants towards the gallows, he screamed his orders, Pull the lever! Wait! The governor tried to halt the advance of Sill's attendants, but they ignored him. The doctor spoke rapidly, racing against time. I came to Varos because I need a new source of energy. My TARDIS depends for its function on a rare and precious substance, Zyton ore. My friends, I can show you new prosperity. Sill's screams became strident as his bodyguards finally reached the executioner. Kill! 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 Destroy them! Choke his mouth up! Press that lever! Now! The strength of two strapping attendants became too much for the executioner, who was compelled to relinquish his grip on the scaffold lever. Horrified, John Dar saw a muscled arm move the lever, and both his and the doctor's trapdoor opened simultaneously, sending their bodies tumbling through the gibbet floor. John Dar felt himself falling and falling. But amazingly, the rope unbound itself from where it had been coiled on the spar above, allowing him to tumble onto straw-filled sacks below the gallows platform. Beside him, Another body stirred. Jonda, are you all right? Yes, yes. Care to rejoin the living? The doctor stepped from beneath the gallows and greeted the governor with studied casualness. Do you often employ that noose trick? As a means of finding out the truth, it has often been successful. You suspected our bluff. I noticed your cameras weren't cabled to a PowerPoint, yes. Ah, most observant. A real execution would have at least been recorded. Yes, but you did make some interesting observations while standing on the threshold of death, Doctor. Did I? The Governor stated flatly. I wish to know the truth about your assertions. The Doctor stared stonily back at the ruler of Varos. I will discuss nothing, reveal nothing, until I have evidence that Perry and Aretta have been released unharmed from the reshapement experiments, until I see them, before the doctor could continue further. Sill interrupted violently. He has nothing to reveal. He is lying. He is an amorb agent who wishes only to usurp our worthy Galatron contract with rash promises. The governor glanced at Sill, then back to the doctor his expressions in turn appraising and speculative. Instinctively, he felt that somewhere in the confused situation lay advantage for Varos and himself, but who could he trust? Until I can hear what each of you has to say, or better still, offer, the matter raised here will not be decided. Should you, Doctor, be lying, the next noose about your neck will extend your spinal column past breaking point. The governor turned a cold eye upon Sill. Should the doctor be telling the truth about Zyton ore and its potential? 
I would wish to know why Varos has been duped by you and your company these many years. How dare I be spoken to like this? I will reject all offers. There was the advantage. The governor spoke quickly. Thank you, Sil. That releases me from my people's decision that I must accept your latest terms. Chief, stop the transfigurational experiment on the women. That will give me the time I need to decide what the truth of all this is and who may live and who must die. Perry and Aretha lay strapped side by side to a table. They strained to escape the intense light that played upon them. Is anything happening? I don't think so, said Perry, squinting down as much as her bindings allowed. Then she realized what was happening and began to scream and scream. Perry? <laughs> My arms! They're beginning to grow feathers like a bird! Aretta struggled to control her distressed comrade. Perry, hold on, hold on. So concerned was Aretta for Perry that she was unaware that her own skin was beginning to scale and discolour towards a sickly green colour, like that of Sill. The chief waited until Sill was alone with only his attendants for company. Patiently, he explained their perilous position. Zyton Seven has brought your company great wealth. You have miscalculated events. For the sake of paying a few miserable extra credits, you may have lost the source of all our wealth and power. Sill became strangely quiet. In its way, the sudden silence became menacing. The eyes of the chief widened with alarm as he realized Sill's attendants were now heavily armed and that their phaser weapons were trained upon him. I have decided to take over the planet Varos. I have activated a coded distress signal that will bring a Galatron company force of occupation to this planet in 48 hours. What if the doctor tells the governor what he suspects of how we have lied about the true worth of Zytonor? Sill thought for a moment. He will only speak if those females are released unharmed. Yes. Have they done that? Not yet. A demonic cackle gurgled in Sill's throat. <laughs> Let us go and observe the experiment of the tissue transmogrifier. I just won't look, Perry said clenching her eyes shut, but feeling the stiff feathers that had now emerged almost fully over her arms. She had begun to resemble an ugly, vulture-like bird, with glossy black feathers that grew longer and longer. Aretta retained much of her original body shape, though the texture of her skin had turned completely into a lizard-like scale of apple green. Outside the transmutation cell, the chief opened the observation hatch and stepped inside to allow Sill to view the scene within. An exclamation of delight issued from the alien. Ah, the doctor's friend is feathered fully. Sill's eyes then darted to the green-scaled Aretta. Ah, but the other female, she becomes ever and ever more attractive. How long before permanent result ensues? Not too certain. This is an untried process. A new idea came to Sill. 
When I am planetary controller, I will keep them both in my pleasure dome of pretty, pretty pecklings. Syl giggled with much pleasure at the thought. At the same time as Perry and Oretta were being subjected to the experiment in the control room nearby, Quillam was regarding the governor, the doctor and Jondar with some amusement. Where are they? Jondar demanded and took an impulsive step towards Quillam. Instantly, two security guards drew phasers from their belts and intervened, thrusting Jondar back. At that moment, the chief joined them. Well, where are they? the doctor asked. The chief officer spread his hands apologetically. There's been a problem. What? The transmogrifier was at too advanced a stage. There was nothing we could do to reverse the situation. Who is responsible for the process of mutation? the doctor demanded. I am, said Quillam calmly, and flicked a switch beside him that illuminated a screen showing Perry and Aretta now almost completely changed into strange creatures. Aretta! An agonised cry came from Jondar, who turned away, unable to bear the sight of the green lizard that had once been his wife. Then, appealing to the doctor, he asked, Can't you do something? Quillam interrupted. There is nothing anyone can do. The process is probably too advanced. Only probably, the doctor asked sharply. It is an unstable process. Then try turning off the machine, the doctor urged. Their bodies might still revert to their former composition. Quillam shook his head and spoke with finality. Not possible. This research is vital for when I install new torture programs into the punishment dome. Witnessing the scowling reaction of the doctor, the governor tried one last tack. What if I insist, Mr Quillam? The masked scientist stiffened angrily. I have absolute authority here. I am the section master. No one orders me. Certainly not a transient governor. The governor took an impulsive step towards Quillam, the hostility flaring between them. All eyes were on the two antagonists. It was an opportunity that allowed John Dar to begin to ease away from the others and sidle towards Quillam's chair. Only the doctor noticed, and in order to allow John Dar more precious seconds, he stepped alongside the governor and asked Quillam abruptly, Do you still experiment on your own person? The masked face turned towards him. Not anymore. Why? But in earlier days you placed yourself in much danger. Yes. Why do you ask? How do you know? Your mask. To everyone's surprise and Quillam's astonishment, the doctor audaciously reached forward and before anyone could stop him, flicked apart the seal strip that held the mask in place. The plastic cover fell away. For a second, everyone stared, horrified, at the white scars, the riven cheekbones, the single wild staring eye bulging into a lidless socket. Everyone, that is, except Jondar who pounced on the security guard nearest to him and pulled the phaser from the surprised man's belt. Turn around, he rapped out, and while Quillam fumbled to replace his mask, the doctor quickly extracted the scientist's gun and covered the Verosians on the other side from Jondar, who now levelled the weapon at Quillam threateningly. Turn off the mutation process, or die. With his face mask once more back in place, Quillam became calm. Take your choice. There must be a thousand switches to pick from. 
If it is a switch that controls the bombardment beam. The doctor levelled his phaser at what he guessed must be a transitional inductor panel and pressed the destroy button. A bolt of sheer red force sped across the chamber, smashing a kinetic energizer which exploded. Aim, Jonda! Aim! the doctor yelled. Firing at random, they emptied their phasers into the technology of centre, gambling and praying that one of these would be the circuit that fed the bombardment beam that had so distorted the bodies of Aretta and Perry. Finally, they left the smoke-filled chamber with its still fragmenting and burning circuitry and retreated, forcing the guards' officer, Maldak, to go with them. Maldak showed the doctor and Jondar the route to the transmutation cell. A large, green, lifeless lizard lay beside a grotesque, unmoving bird. The doctor bent over the large, black bird that had been Perry and shook his head sadly. Beside him, Jondar gently lifted the scaled green arm of Aretta, searching for a pulse, however faint. Anything? the doctor asked. Jondar sighed. Hard to tell. The skin is so thick, so... Look! The doctor turned to where Jondar pointed. Perry, she... it... it moved! Yes, there's something here, a faint heartbeat. They're alive! The doctor had been examining the light source above the two changelings. We might just have stopped the process before the transformation was complete. That's perhaps why you couldn't feel Loretta's pulse at first, but, but if the scale is becoming thinner, that would allow her pulse to become detectable. The doctor began to raise Perry from the table, where Jondar had started to unbuckle the strapping that held Loretta. Doctor, Loretta's changing back. Slowly, her hands are almost clear. Aretta, Aretta. We must leave, the doctor said. Supporting the two women who had begun increasingly to revert back to their former selves, the doctor and Jondar carried the still almost comatose pair out of their cells and into the corridor to face the dangers that lay before them within the prison control sector. And after that, the unknown terrors of the punishment dome. Trying hard to note the rapidly changing images flicking across her home screen, Etta finally gave up the battle and looked up from her Viewstat report. I just don't understand what's happening. Neither do they, said Arak sourly, nodding at the screen. Stung by the criticism of the ruling class she served so loyally, Etta rallied to their defence. The videos know what they're doing. Rubbish. You'd watch anything. No, said Etta decisively. I wouldn't watch you. Stepping back out of sight before the camera could locate them, the Doctor and Jondar waited, praying that the approaching patrol car would pass them by. The ominous swish of the car increased as it came closer and closer and then slowed to a halt. Soon, the noise of boots marching on the rocky floor was heard advancing nearer and nearer. Jondar lifted his phaser in readiness. The half a dozen men marched by without a glance into the gloom of the disused corridor. Then, disaster. Doctor! A terrified voice that was undoubtedly Perry's rang out from behind them, halting the guards. Instantly, Jondar acted, stepping out and firing at the patrol, who scattered away in confusion. The car! We can take their car! Jondar yelled in excitement, firing another precious bolt. I can cover you! 
Aretta? Aretta, recovered just enough to understand his call, came slowly forward to join him and the doctor. But as soon as the first shot was fired, Perry had set off in the other direction. Perry! the doctor yelled, but she disappeared. A force bolt ricocheted from the shining black surface of the patrol car as the doctor opened the door panel. Hastily, he hauled Aretta inside and then swayed aside as John Dar scrambled in to join them. The car jerked forward crazily, then accelerated away from the running guards who fired wildly after it. In the governor's office, a confrontation was taking place between the ruler of Varos and the being who coveted his position of power. The governor seemed unimpressed. I must know more, he began, but before he could finish, the door to his office opened and a bewildered girl was pushed into the office by two guards. Perry. Found wandering near prison control, the chief announced. There was something different about the tone of the chief officer's voice that to the governor's sense of danger sounded like a warning. I brought her here to display as evidence before the people. I will decide when and if I broadcast, chief. The chief drew from his holster a phaser weapon and trained it on the governor. Not any more. The regulations have a clause for just the situation that we are in now. At the end of each governor's term, there comes a time of disapproval, when the people finally tire of incompetence. The only wish of Viewpop, then, is to vote him down. When the final vote is being avoided, as I believe it is now, the chief officer is empowered to insist on a final vote. Governor... You have to accept responsibility for failing to quell the prison rebellion led by this woman, Perry, and her companion, the one they call the Doctor. Prepare for your final broadcast, Governor, the Chief ordered, while in the background Sill clapped his tiny green hands together in wild applause at the prospect of the Governor's final fall. It's useless. She's gone or been captured. Aretta voiced all their thoughts as they sat in the patrol car after a fruitless search for Perry. Perhaps. The doctor tried the finger panel and nothing happened. No power. They've turned the supply off. I think they've got Perry, said John Dar. They'll get us too unless we move into the punishment dome before they can get it working properly again. Could we find the hidden exit? Aretta asked. We can try. Aretta turned to the doctor. Come with us. We need you. All right. Listening to the governor's reply to the chief, Arak jumped as the instruction, Vote, vote, started to flash across his home screen and across the governor's image. On screen, the governor smiled sadly. Behind him, Perry could be seen, a forlorn figure who had done her best to support the governor's arguments, and what was, to Arak, his laughable assertion that Zyton Seven might be a precious commodity. "'I am not afraid to die,' the governor concluded. "'Good,' said Arak, and stood up to reach the no button on his wall panel. Pressing his vote was not enough for the excited Arak. So anxious was he to vote the governor down that he impulsively used Etta's no button in addition to his own. Hey, said Etta indignantly, but it was too late. Arak's vote on her behalf against the beleaguered governor had already been added to the growing total against his survival. The picture switched to the voting register. The governor beckoned Maldak the guard over. 
You are the only guard. You can stop all this and let us go. I can't do that, replied Maldak. This is a ridiculous way to govern. And remember, it could be your name the computer selects to be the next governor. And like me, you'd have no choice. Maldak looked blank. If the vote goes against me, do me one favour. Kill Perry. Don't let Quillam experiment on her. Suddenly, the restraining clamps activated and held the governor captive in his chair, indicating that the negative votes had reached a majority. Red and green beams of debilitation came pouring down upon the hapless governor, who gamely continued his appeal to the cameras. Our system is wrong. We sell ourselves for nothing to such a sill, and his like... Huh? The beams intensified their force, as if trying to still the governor's tongue. Groaning, the governor began to suffer so much that his last words were gasped out with his remaining resources of strength. I see my words mean nothing. That you all wish the harsh system to continue. So be it. Across the room, Maldak had taken his phaser from his holster and was levelling it at Perry. No! Please, no! Perry shouted, but the guard's finger tightened and the deadly beam seared towards her. Perry closed her eyes and waited for burning destruction to strike. But instead, the bolt hit where it had been aimed, at the power cable that fed the device that had been pouring destruction down upon the governor. As the cable melted, the power supply suddenly ceased, allowing the governor to free his arms with a last feeble effort. In the prison control centre, Quillam and Sill turned from their screen and angrily remonstrated with the crestfallen chief officer. What incompetence has overtaken us now? Why can't people simply get killed anymore? Hurry, sir. Maldak urged his exhausted leader. Soon the other guards will break in. Oh, where can we go? Where should we go? We must join the doctor, Perry said, but then remembered. If, if we knew where he was... Well, there was a report he was heading for the end zone. We were told to concentrate on getting rid of the governor, then go and get the doctor once and for all. I'm glad you changed your mind, Maldak. The doctor must be seeking the safe exit. Well, let's go there, then. Perry urged. Concentrating hard, the governor outlined a plan. We could try and get into the punishment dome from the outside. It should be easy to locate the safe exit location, go in, find the doctor, join forces. Well, the outside, sir, I, I have never been. I know where there are protective suits. What I say must be tempted. From now on, there'll be no more ritualised forms of death. Should we be caught now... We'll be gunned down instantly, as will the Doctor. I wonder why we've been allowed to travel this far into the dome without being apprehended, said Aretta. I think we're into what they call the end game, replied John Dar. Very few trialists ever reach this stage. Walking a few paces behind them, the Doctor had been listening thoughtfully.
Would that be where this mythical safe exit is supposed to be? Presumably. Hmm, said the doctor cheerfully. Well, we'd better be cautious. The mind games and jolly little tricks lie behind us, that's for certain. All exchanged wary glances. The end game had begun. You are incompetent, profitless fools! Sill glared at Quillam and the chief officer malevolently. The governor and the girl have escaped. Your viewers are laughing at you. I think you have lost your power. That is not true. The chief pointed at two open-top patrol cars full of armed troops and guards. I still control the forces of order. Not for much longer, spat Sill. If this doctor meets up with the governor and tells him the truth of your treachery over all these yearlings, you will be in the hot seat for good. He is right, said Quillam quietly. I will lead the search for them personally. That is not your province, the chief began, and then changed his tack abruptly. You may come along, Mr Quillam, but I will lead. Quillam did not bother to reply but climbed purposefully into the front seat of the leading patrol car. The chief pushed in beside him and pointed forward. Let's find and destroy those rebels. Into the punishment dome! The body lay sprawled across the full width of the corridor. It was obviously that of a prisoner, judging by the ragged clothes and begrimed hands. Who could it be? the doctor asked. John Dar shrugged. Or maybe someone who was condemned and survived this far. Maybe one of the residents. Residents? Wretches who were relatives of the condemned without anyone to support them. The doctor bent down to examine the corpse and move the arm away from a dead man's face. The skin was blue, and the expression, shocking with bulging eyes, frozen in terror. Aretta turned away. Who could have done that? The doctor opened the grimy collar of the ragged grey prison shirt. That's what killed him. A purple contusion formed a ring on the neck, as if inflicted by a sucker of some sort. His neck seemed swollen as if to burst. Poison? A theory began to form in the doctor's mind, but before it could complete itself, a cry from Aretta diverted all his attention. Doctor! Creeping towards them, growling like hungry animals, were a large pack of residents. For a moment they stood their ground and watched the red-eyed mob edging towards them. Aretta trembled. Well, what should we do, Doctor? Run, said the Doctor, calmly. On the airless exterior of the dome, the Governor's gloved hand touched metal, rather than the pitted plastic he'd been searching his way along for the past hour. Pointing, he began to clear away the cracked layers of grit. Maldak and Perry joined him. Perry thought grimly of the final deceit that this safe exit represented. Any prisoner who found his way here would step directly out into an airless world, which would cause them instant death without breathing apparatus. What despicable creatures the Verosian rulers were. Both men pulled with all their strength and slowly the handle moved, allowing them to slide open the door. Ducking inside, they found themselves entering an airlock. Slowly, the air pressure equalised itself and the inner door opened. The governor, Perry and Maldak cautiously stepped into the dome.
that seemed strangely humid. Soon they felt the need to discard their helmets and protective clothing. Why is it so hot? Perry asked. I don't know, the governor said, wiping perspiration from his forehead. This section was designed before my time. Let's find out, shall we? Uh, what's been happening? Etta indicated the screen. Hard to tell. There's lots of shots of two patrol cars speeding along, a group of residents charging about. Oh, oh look! It's the guy in a patchwork coat. They're after him. Oh, great. I like him. There's always action when he's on screen. There was now some 50 metres between the doctor and his companions and the pursuing residents. Ahead of them was what seemed to be a jungle of luxuriant green foliage. Into the vines, said the doctor, but be careful. I have a feeling we mustn't allow a single touch. Ultra carefully, he led the way, slowly manoeuvring into the forest of deadly creepers. The mob came nearer, but also slowly and very cautiously. What do they want with us? Aretta asked, as the leading wretch advanced through the hanging vines. Then a tendril brushed his outstretched arm. The effect was instantaneous. A howl of anger came from the unfortunate man, who convulsed, then fell into a state of paralysis as the venom of the vine journeyed through his bloodstream. The doctor and the others stood horrified as the reason for their being hunted by the pack of residents became apparent. The mob were pulling their stricken comrade clear, with every intention of satisfying their hunger in a disgusting and gruesome way. At that moment, through the hanging vines, they saw two patrol cars hurtling into view, the brief covering down to allow the guards to fire at the mob of feasting residents. There they are! yelled the chief impetuously, as he spied the doctor and his companions standing immobile amidst the poison forest. Charge! Kill! he yelled. With a roar, the crowded vehicles bore into the poison-laden creepers. The hanging fronds brushed all below them in the passing cars, and soon did their deadly work. Within minutes, the rulers of Varos were just so many grotesque puppets, scattered and frozen in attitudes of surprised death within their stationary patrol cars. Turning their backs on the fallen rulers and the mob now wreaking a terrible revenge, the doctor led Aretta and Jondar deeper into the deadly jungle. On the other side of the treacherous disorder of poison vines, Perry, the governor and Maldak had paused uncertainly on coming to the unexpected sprouting of tropical greenery. Well, there's no way forwards, Maldak announced. It's either back to the safe exit or on through this... Suddenly a familiar voice boomed out. Stop! Stay exactly where you are! The surprise of the command was enough to halt Perry just before she was about to push her way through the hanging tendrils. Doctor? she called. The vines are filled with poison. Don't move until we reach you. Very slowly... Followed by Jonda and Aretta, the doctor advanced, until he emerged safely to be reunited with Perry. Stabbing into a relay communications keyboard, Sill spelled out, Where is Invasion Fleet? After a moment on the display screen above came the cryptic reply, 
Request denied. Return to Thoros Beta immediately. What? Fools on the Executive Council have no nerve. We'll ignore their insult of a summons home and take our skills to work for Amorb or anyone else who will dare to struggle against total profit. So irate was the little green creature that all present in the cabin failed to notice a door slide open silently behind them. Prepare the ship. We blast off immediately. I think not, Syl, the governor said quietly, as he stood aside to allow his armed guards to take control of the Thoros-beaten starship. How dare! Syl started. I have been in contact with your leader, Lord Kiv, said the governor. He is to send another negotiator to bargain a fair price for our valuable, our most valuable commodity, Zyton Seven. What about me? Syl wailed. You are to appear before Lord Kiv personally, it seems. The governor, when he related the incident later, swore that Syl's green colouring lightened several shades at the prospect of such a meeting with the one creature he feared and respected, the mighty Lord Kiv. In the days that followed the destruction of the officer guard, many changes had been promised for Varos, the most disturbing of which was the end of the compulsory viewing of the transmissions from within the punishment zone. Arak and Etta sat dumbly before the screens as the governor finished outlining his hopes and dreams for a free, prosperous Varos. The familiar smile broadened on screen. My fellow Verosians, as you know, from now on, compulsory viewing is no longer required. You may do as you wish. Watch what you wish. Even turn me off the screen now, if you so wish. The governor's image smiled and then faded. The familiar V appeared with the national anthem playing quietly behind. Dare we try it? asked Etta timidly. No more executions? Nothing, said Arak, nervously suspecting a trick. Oh, it's all changed. We're free. Whatever that is. And then Etta reached for the control switch, but her nerve failed her. I, I can't. Oh, well, let me, Arak said bravely, and tremblingly pressed the off button. For a full minute, man and wife gazed the blank, dull, grey wall screen. What shall we do? Don't know. Then, as one, they turned away from the empty wall and looked at each other, wonderingly. The goodbyes had been said outside to the Governor and Maldak, to Aretta and Jondar. Now Perry and the Doctor were alone once more inside the TARDIS. Wiping his hands after a final check on the completed repairs on the console before him, the doctor became aware of a strangely silent and subdued Perry. Do you feel all right? Apart from the residual side effects of foul pest, I feel great. Just stay away from the militant cuttlefish sandwiches, then. You're sure the TARDIS will function properly? Oh, yes. Yes, we can leave any time we like. Disappointed? Perry shuddered at the thought of remaining on Varos. 
You think I'm crazy? No. Anyone as determined as you are to leave this planet is very far from being crazy. In the old prison control centre, the governor, flanked by his new ministers and advisers, watched, amazed, as the old-fashioned police box shimmered, faded, then roared a final farewell to Varos and a people about to enjoy a new dawn.